netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX Podcast, where we take our passion for visual effects and bring you interviews from around the world. The FX Podcast was started as a place for us to dig deep on the technical side, talk one-on-one with top visual effects artists, advance the craft of visual effects, and also pay respect to the really hard-working people that produce the amazing work that we love. So this is your chance to hear directly from the source, and this is particularly relevant today as Jeff Huser explores really what is the, the business of visual effects as opposed to the artistry of visual effects by talking to Peter Marley of IARTSI. Now, Artsy is the international union that looks after most of the people that are below the line in a feature film, for example. Now, the very idea of how international and international Artsy is is one of the things that Jeff will explore as he tries to sift through some of the terminology and some of the issues and confusion around this idea of forming some kind of an effects guild. And he, he looks at a bunch of stuff from, for example, what is the difference between a union and a guild? Um, could, for example, we get residuals if we were members of a guild and how would that even work? Or could we even get perhaps access to guild residuals indirectly? Um, and would the guild be a political organisation? Would it in fact go after runaway productions? How would healthcare work under a union? A big issue for Americans, of course, without a centralised healthcare system such as we have here in Australia or in, say, the UK. And then some of the more complex terms that certainly I was unaware of, this idea of banking days and exactly how a union would work and and how it would get up and running. And, for example, would I be sort of limited if I was in a guild to only being able to work at shops that had had a guild-negotiated contract? These are complex uh, issues, and quite frankly, Jeff has been after the answer to these for a long time. He's been really following this issue because, as we always like to say, the one thing that really helps in any of these issues is to have open and frank discussion and Jeff sits down for this in-depth interview with Peter and starts by talking to him about some of this complexity especially around the area of healthcare. Well, thanks for joining us, Peter, and welcome to the FX Podcast. I'm very happy to have you here. You know, obviously for a long time now I've wanted to do this interview and uh, give the IA an opportunity to just talk directly to the artists and and, uh, make their case, and that's what we're going to do. Before we do that, I just have to, because it's been a long road to get here. Um, The IA announced their intention to organize visual effects back in November of 2010, which is over 500 and some odd days ago, so I just have to start out with, and then I'll let you jump into the, 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 the platform and all. What, what took so long, what, what, and why are you here now? What, well, what took so long is, is, an, is an interesting question. We've had a lot of stuff going on, at least in, in our office. Um, clearly, some of the stuff we were doing was not as effective as we would have liked it to have been. Uh, we did start adding staff uh, a while ago to get some of this stuff going, and we, we went a direction that wasn't really working. We started looking at this industry from the top um, and try to let it filter down to the bottom, and that really didn't work very well. And also over the course of uh, you know the last couple of years, uh, our, our leadership, which a couple of years ago changed, um, has found its legs, and here we are in the 21st century, ready to go forward. Yeah, and talking with you guys over the years, the uh, it seems like there's been a lot of uh, 
hesitance on the social media web front and all that. So I'm, I'm anxious to see where we're hidden with that. Um, and also Jimmy Goodman's no longer with the operation, right? I think a lot of people came to know Jimmy through a lot of his meetings around town and his blogging and stuff, but he's no longer with the operation now. Yeah. Jimmy's, Jimmy's no longer with us. Um, you know, we, we parted ways a couple of months ago. Um, Jimmy was a friend of mine. He, he worked at this, uh, it didn't go the way we all thought it was going to go. It wasn't wasn't particularly productive, um, so we changed we changed course is what we did. And and you know one of the other things that's happened with our organization, we've added a community uh, excuse me communications director back in New York, which I think is a big step in the right direction. Um, we've gotten some new people that are embracing social media and the internet, and it's uh, it's a big change for us. And you know we're we're feeling it out as we go, but. It's that's what it takes to do business in today's world, and uh, and we're going to be there, and we've we're committed to that, and we're we're going forward. We've got more people in 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 the West Coast office. We've added uh, Vanessa Holt crew to our team in the West Coast office, and that's a welcome addition. We've got our communications director Emily Tao back in New York, which is also a welcome addition, and and we're moving along. What um, I think a lot of artists that I've talked to really thought that when the intention to organize was announced that that was it it's done that's great everybody will come running and it's going to be done and obviously that hasn't happened um the process is a little more complicated than that but let's let's come back to that let's start out with um the basics um one of the things i've noticed in the discussion is when you talk to artists the word union itself is often an immediate turnoff to people it's just a historical thing it's a movie thing it's Mm -hmm. you know and i notice you know driving around town and looking at websites of all the different different options. I mean, Motion Picture Editors Guild, the International Cinematographers Guild, the Art Directors Guild, the Animation Guild, the, you know, everybody uses the word guild, it seems like, at least in their public front. They're the same thing, correct? They're the same thing to us, whether you call it a union or a guild, it's, it's the same thing. We have all banded together to collectively bargain a contract and speak with a unified voice, and that's what, that's what we're hoping the, the visual effects artists come to realize that that's what they need to do. And the IA is more of an umbrella, and each of those organizations really do focus on their area. Is that how I understand it? Yeah, that, that's correct. The, the, the IA is, is an umbrella organization. It's the international union. And the international then is made up with, of local unions, and that's what all those guilds are that you just mentioned. Cinematographers Guild is Local 600. The Animators Guild is Local 839. The Editors Guild is Local 700. So they're local unions of the IATSE. And each one of those local unions has an awful lot of autonomy within the IATS itself. Okay, so I just recently saw that the IA signed a new contract or agreed to new terms. Is that then apply to everybody? Uh, if you're talking about the basic agreement, those negotiations just just concluded. Um, we haven't signed anything yet. That what that process is is there is one one agreement in Hollywood for motion picture productions called the basic agreement, and that's between the producers and the IATSE. The IA is the bargaining uh, representative for all those unions that make motion pictures. And what's happened with that is the negotiations have concluded. They've come to a tentative agreement, and now that agreement needs to be ratified by all the locals. So what's going to happen in the very near future is a summary of that agreement is going to be sent out to every member in the bargaining unit or in those locals, and they're going to get a chance to, to vote thumbs up or thumbs down on that agreement. So it's not like the IA sits back in New York City or in Toluca Lake 
and tells all these locals what it's going to do, and they have to go along with it. They've, it's a democratic organization. They all have a choice at this point as to whether they're going to ratify the contract or not ratify the contract. I think that's a really important point because I think a lot of people have this perception that it's this, you know, overriding agency that just dictates things. But it's actually, I mean, it's a group of people that are banded together to be stronger together, essentially. Yeah, and I think that's, I think that's really important to understand about what a union is at its core. I mean, we're used to, to getting bombarded with terms like you know, big labor or union bosses and all those kinds of things that some of our, well, our loyal opposition says to try and discredit us. A union at its core is really nothing more than a group of people that work at, a, at one facility or for an employer banding together saying, you know what, we think we're going to be stronger together. And we want to talk with a single voice, and we want to find one person to speak for us And you know, when, when, when we need to talk to our employer. And it's really nothing more complicated than that. I think a friend of mine recently put it in perspective for me, um, talking about a film. And I want to get into what specifically things you guys do for the artists or for the members. Um, but one of the big things I know is the Motion Picture Health Care Fund. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm using that phrase right, but the, the, the insu- well, health yeah, motion, insu- motion Picture Industry Plan. Okay. Um, and that's something that is funded by residuals from DVD sales? It's funded in a couple of different ways. The Motion Picture Industry Plan has two funding, funding mechanisms. One is a per-hour contribution that is paid by the, in the employers for every hour that somebody works or is guaranteed. And then the other half, or half, the other part of that is is the residual component that that you're talking about, and that is paid on the back end with post sixties money, DVD sales, secondary markets, and, and and other income streams like that. So the the friend of mine was mentioning that you know looking at a big visual effects movie that makes billions of dollars, uh, he happened to sit down and count the credits and found that the visual effects department was like eleven hundred names, mm-hmm. and realized that. If you added most of the other departments together, it was not close. It was getting close to 1,100 names, right? It, right. But this huge, huge contribu- contribution to the bottom line is not benefiting from that participation in that healthcare plan. Well, you're right. They're not benefiting on the front end. They're not having hourly contributions paid on on, on their labor on the front end, and they're not seeing any 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 back end money to it. They're not seeing any residual payments, and the actors actually get residual payments, right? The, the the workers in the IATSC, the, the the prop makers, the craft service people, the grips, the camera the camera people, we don't really get residuals. Well, we don't get residuals that come to us personally. We chose a long time ago to have that go to our benefit plans, and that over the years has funded about sixty to seventy percent of that benefit plan. That's a little less now, and that's one of the reasons that. We're so upset about uh, pirated DVDs and pirated things over the Internet is it's really cutting into our health care plan and our retirement plan. Right. But it still is thriving. I mean, I know I saw in the recent negotiations that for the first time, um, members are being asked to contribute, what is it, like $25 a month if they are uh, a family? A, a, I think it's the, fir- it's the first contribution that you guys yeah, had yeah. to make. What's happened in the, in the recent negotiations is for the first time there's going to be a payment for premium that will come from the member. Up until this agreement, um, members of the MPI or participants in the MPI have never had to pay an insurance premium. And this time, if the agreement is ratified, 
Um, there is going to be a, a copay for premium or a premium payment. It's important to mention that the, the participant or the member or the worker himself or herself, that, that person is not going to have to pay a premium to have health insurance. But if they have a dependent, it'll be 25 bucks for the first dependent, and after that it'll be 50 bucks for a family. So if you just have yourself and one dependent, it's going to be a $25 a month. $25 a month. Now, and, I mean, I've seen some complaining about this in some of the forums online. Um, but I, I just sat there stunned that somebody would even flinch. That happened to everybody else in the United States more than 10 years ago. I mean, I'm sure mo- anybody that's had a, a job has had to chip into their health care plan years ago. It, it actually speaks to the strength to me of how strong this program has been that this is now in 2012, the first time this is ever happening. Well, I think that's exactly correct. And, and none of us like it and none of us wanted it. We all wanted to have the employers pay the entire bill, but that wasn't to be. Um, the other thing I should mention is that during that negotiations, the employer's upfront contribution rose by 20%. So the, President Loeb was able to bargain up the employer's contribution from about $5 to $6, and that happened in the beginning of the con- or will happen, assuming this is ratified, in the in the beginning of the contract, not in the end. I know an awful lot of the contracts that I bargain, we get increases in health care, but they're incremental over the life of the contract. This is a dollar up front. So every hour that's worked from uh, August 1st of this year till the end of the agreement, we'll have an additional dollar in health care contributions, and that's worth many hundreds of millions of dollars. Talk to me about what a person who is represented by on a film crew, what, what benefits do they get besides health care? Well, they get they get their health care benefit. Oh, wait, before we do that, I'm sorry. Sure. We should talk about the health care benefit a little bit more before we branch off, because I think there's a really important thing that I've come to understand about this is that the um, the whole idea of banking hours. Can you talk about that and, and what happens at the end of banking hours? Because, I mean, a lot of people are familiar with um, working at a company and getting, you know, maybe they, they leave the company and they get COBRA and they can pay an exorbitant amount of money to continue on. Not It's not exorbitant, but, you know, a higher rate to continue on in the health care plan. But it's a little different in the motion picture plan. Well, what we have in the motion picture plan is in order to qualify for health care, you have to work an, an initial 600 hours, I believe it is. And once you have initial, initially qualified, then you need to work 400 hours every six months to keep your health care going, which, if you think about it, is... It's it's not it's not a ton of hours. It's a, it's a lot on a freelance business. But if you figure there's two thousand straight time hours in a regular year to qualify for the MPI, you have to work eight hundred straight time hours to to keep your health plan going. One of the things that that the the plan one of the features of the plan to allow for long periods of unemployment is you're allowed to bank hours. So you can bank up to 450 hours, I believe that it is. So when you, if you have a period of time where you don't work enough to make your 400 hours, you can use hours out of that bank to fill in um, to tide you over until your next job starts. So in a best case scenario, you could use those banked hours for a long period of time or however long you have of that time. And then after that, you can still roll into a COBRA, I assume. Yeah, well, you can, you can use, you know, say you stop working today and, and you run out of your, the 400 hours that you're in now. Once you come up to, to, to the new time period, you can use your bank at, banked hours, which can carry you another six months. And once you run out of banked hours, then you can go on to COBRA for, I believe, 18 months. Okay, 
so what? Let's talk about other things then besides the health care plan, because I think we've covered that pretty well. Well, can I, can I yeah, say please, one more thing about sure. the health care plan? You don't have to work all those hours for a single employer. You can work those hours for any employer that's signatory to that agreement. So if you work for Universal one week and you work for Warner Brothers the next and then you do four weeks with uh, Sony, all those hours count towards your health care, which is distinctly different than if you're working for a private employer. Because I know a lot of employers out there offer pretty good benefits, but you have to work all your hours for that one employer. Right. And that's one of the major differences between a company-sponsored plan and a Taft-Hartley plan. And we would refer to that more as, I guess people tend to refer to that as more portable benefits. It's, yeah, it's, it's Port- a portable benefit. And that's an important thing, I think, for visual effects artists, especially in like Los Angeles, where you may work for a company like Sony for six months, and you may work for another company, and you know how long does it take to get qualified each time you start one of those new jobs in a company? And even if you're on a film for a year, you know, there may be a 90-day waiting period, get into their health care plan, um, if it's even offered to you, and then... Um, I mean, if a company goes out of business, like we've seen quite frequently in visual effects, unfortunately, Cobra's done. There is no such thing at that point. So there's another right. benefit, too, with this, with the idea of being able to carry your hours over and also go into Cobra automatically there because it survives the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, because the, trust, the trust fund, the, that health care plan is administered by a trust fund, which is made up of half people from management and half, half people from, from the union. Um, those guys are called trustees, typically. In this plan, they're called directors. Um, and those are the people that administer that plan. That plan exists separately from the employer and separately from the union. It's its, its own entity, and neither the union or the employers have control over that. So what other benefits? Uh, does that cover everything for health care? You- uh, yeah, I think okay. so. All right. Um, so what other benefits? What else does the union do for its members? Well, as far as the fringe benefits go, there's also there, there's the pension plan, which I think is a pretty important thing. There's an individual account plan that acts a lot like an annuity. Um, but that's all the fringe benefit stuff. Then the other benefits to, 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 to being in a union when you're on the job is you've got somebody that can address your complaints on the job. If, if the contract, or the state law for that matter, are not being adhered to, if the employer is violating that or treating, treating you badly, you've got somebody that you can go talk to that can be on your side. You, you can go talk to your shop steward. You can call your union representative over at your local union and get somebody to, you have somebody to sit down and talk with and then somebody to represent you to the employer. Well, and I think that's a really important part, uh, thing to focus on, because as an individual, it's really difficult. If somebody comes to you and says, we need you to work through lunch, we need you to do this, and we're not going to pay you for this, or we need you to work this weekend, um, or any kind of violation, even if there's state laws, the difference between you trying to file a complaint with a state agency for a single violation of some weird thing, you know, versus calling a union steward or somebody. It, it's that unity thing to me. It's that it's defined. It's, it's the def- definition of absolute rules and then an easy way for people to say, hey, this is being violated. I can't. We, we have to stop this. Well, you, you, you have somebody to go to talk to. You don't have to go to your immediate supervisor who you, a, you might be intimidated by. Um, you might feel rep- fear reprisals from him, or he might be a really good friend of yours and going, yeah, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it for Steve because um, he's a good guy and he wouldn't really hurt me, although I don't like it. And it it really gives you a place to go. 
and a way to get your concerns addressed before they get out of hand, before you start feeling bad, before your employer starts feeling like you're feeling bad, and, and then he's got an issue with your work performance because you're not happy when you come to work. you got some place to go to address that. You can pick up the phone, call your union representative, whether it be your steward or, or call, call your office, and get a, get a rep out there and have somebody to talk to, and they can address those things for you in a, in a way that you just can't do it on, on the set. Well, and from looking at that further, for me, it sounds like it also, one of the problems we face in visual effects, I think, is the unlevel playing field. There's people that play by the rules, Mm -hmm. and there's people that don't play by the rules, Mm -hmm. and it makes it very difficult to compete when you're competing with a company across town who, we'll get into outsourcing and stuff like that later, but competing with a company across town who is just not playing by the rules, the same rules that you are. Right, And, and that... That's got to make it very, very tough. If you've got company A and you, that, that is doing all the right stuff, they're paying overtime after eight hours, they're paying you know, overtime after 40 hours, they're giving you your breaks, everything is the way it's supposed to be, and you've got a company on the other side of town that is saying, yeah, come to work for me and, you can, and uh, I'll pay you a flat rate. And I'm not going to take taxes out of it. I'm going to call you an independent contractor, and that's how I'm going to save my money. And it's, and, co- and company A is going, well, wait a minute. I'm paying payroll taxes. I'm paying Social Security. I'm treating the guy as an, as an employee. I'm giving him overtime. I'm doing all these things for him. How am I supposed to compete with this guy across town who's not doing anything, and who do I complain to about that? How do I get that heard? Because... California Attorney General is probably not going to get involved with that, even if you could come, even if you could get there, because he's got other things to do. And it's that's that's part of what I think the benefit of unionizing this industry will bring to everybody that's in it, including the employers. There'll be there'll be a level playing field, and there'll be an enforcement agency out there to make sure that all that stuff is being adhered to. So. The, the shop, the shop owners, and the artists can can still compete with each other, but they won't compete with each other over money. They'll compete with each other over talent. They'll compete with each other over best ways to run their business, more efficient ways to run their business. And by efficient, I don't mean paying less to the employees. I mean figuring out how to do it better. Which is, I mean, that's what we all do. Right. It actually brings me back to the healthcare thing once again because one of the other thoughts is that you could. If you were working in the motion picture healthcare plan, then if you did have to take a job at a shop, you know your your movie ends and you have to take a job in a shop that isn't part of the pack, isn't under signature to the union, you could do that for a certain amount of time and still carry your benefits if you have banked hours. Yes, and then go back to the plan when you move back over. And I could see the long game of that being that companies that don't aren't union could have a harder time finding artists. I mean, I would see I, I could see down the line. That that would be, you know, artists would be wanting to choose companies where they could get their hours and where they could get the protections. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, if you if you're if you're an artist out there and you have a choice of working for a company that's going to pay into your retirement, pay into your health care funds, and you're going to be protected, or working for somebody that's not going to do any of those things, you may work for that person for a while, but ultimately you want to go back to somebody that's taken good care of you, or you may want to unionize the non-union shop. And there's one thing that that's kind of a myth out there, that once you join a union, you're not allowed to work for non-union shops anymore, and the union will persecute you for that. We got In the IA, we got over that quite a while ago. 
the only thing that we ask of our members if they go to work on a non-union in a non-union shop or on a non-union picture, we ask that they call us and let us know. That's that's all. We just want to. People have to eat, and we get that. And we also get that we need to organize these places. And if we know where people are working, then that uh, that helps us in that in that direction. So talk, let's go back to the 1099 thing, because I think that's a big issue for visual effects artists. I think mm-hmm. a lot of people over the years have found themselves being classified as independent contractors, which as far as we know is completely wrong. Right. Most cases because of supervisory issues. We've, we've done considerable coverage of that in the past. And, but is that something that you guys would – and let's say there's a shop. When you go to organize a shop and people are signing cards, does it matter whether they're independent contractors or staff or – if they're working there, they're working there, isn't it? Well, true? We're gonna, we would take the position that if you're working there, you're working in there. And if you're working there on a 1099 or as an independent contractor, there's really no big mystery as to whether or not you actually are an independent contractor or if you're being misclassified. You know, the IRS has 20 questions, which I don't have in front of me, but there are 20 questions out there, and you can figure that out. And if you can't figure it out, there's a form you can fill out and send into the IRS, and they will tell you whether or not you, you're properly classified. And that's something that the union would absolutely go to bat with people for and say, you, you're being misclassified. And we go to the company and say, you're misclassifying these people. And it's misclassifying people hurts everybody. I mean, it, you have no protections. If, if you're a subcontractor and you're not carrying your own workers' comp and your own SDI and paying all that stuff, you're, you're working out there naked, essentially. And the companies that are misclassifying you, they're not having to pay that stuff, and they're not paying taxes. So they're stealing from you, and they're stealing from the taxpayers of whatever state you're in. And I've heard from several artists who have been involved in situations where the companies have gone out of business and found that as a 1099 worker, they're at the bottom of the creditor list. They're not employees are at the top of the creditor right. list. Um, and also, one of the big problems we face right now in, in visual effects is 1099, 1099 workers being treated like employees, but there's no obligation to pay on a regular basis like there is if you're an employee. So, you know, I've had people tell me they're 45, 60, 90 days out on invoices, even though in their contract or their deal memo or whatever, they might have a 15-day clause in there. There's no... There's no backup for that. You can take them to court, but... Well, that's exactly right. You could take them to court, and chances are you're not going you know, If you go to court, you're probably not going to handle it yourself. You're probably going to have to hire an attorney or a collection agency, just like everybody else that's owed money, and you'd be lucky to see 50 cents on the dollar. Right, exactly. And so, for me, that's another big thing, is that, you know, the, the, the misclassification of workers, people, people start to feel the pain of that... Even if they, I've, I've, I honestly, a lot of artists have told me they really prefer to be classified that way. They they want to do it. Their tax guy has told them it's a great thing to do. Right. And I say, look at that list of questions from the IRS because it doesn't matter what you want. Right. People say, but I want to be an independent contractor. I'm like, what well, doesn't matter? It's it's a it's a black and white issue. It's a, you know, I'm sure that with accountants and lawyers, nothing's a black and white issue, but it's pretty clear cut as to you know how you're classified. And when I've looked down that list, I've gone, not many people I know in the visual effects business. Other than people working out of their houses, maybe yeah, can really qualify. Yep, and 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 if you're truly an independent contractor and you truly have a business and you're truly set up to do all those things, and that you find that that truly benefits you, you know that may be something that we need to deal with. But I'm not sure how many people that are independent contractors really are businesses at the same time. 
I mean, it might look good because you you get all that money on your you know up front. You don't have to pay taxes on it up front, but the tax man's always going to get you. Right. Exactly. That's for sure. Um, let's talk about holidays, sick days, things like that. Are those covered in, in uh, negotiations? They, they, they are covered in negotiations. You know, all that stuff is up for negotiations every every time we negotiate a contract. Um, we have under the basic agreement, we've got. I'm not sure that there that, that there are sick days per se, and you'll have to forgive me with that. Um, I know that there for for the for the covered holidays. If you work on the covered holidays. Um, you will get a premium payment for working on those covered holidays. And I also know that part of uh, – there, there is a, an unworked holiday payment that's made uh, on your behalf, so you will get a check for unworked holidays. So let's talk a little bit about who all does the IA represent. I mean, let's talk about feature films first. I mean, when people see that credit roll and all those names go by, who all does the IA represent? We represent – I want to say most of the below the line crew on a motion picture. If you start with the camera, the cameraman, or the, or the the director of photography, he's rep- represented by the IATSC. The editor's represented by the I- IATSC. The whole camera crew, from the operator down to the loader to the focus puller, those guys are all represented by the uh, by the IA. Uh, the guys pushing the camera on the dolly, those guys are represented by the IA. Um, the guys putting flags up over the lights, the guys hanging the lights, the craft service table, the guys sweeping the floor, uh, the people carrying the costumes around, the shoot, we represent just about everybody on that sound stage. And most of the other people in that in that soundstage are represented by one union or another. I mean, the ADs are represented by the Directors Guild. The drivers are represented by the Teamsters. The actors, of course, are either SAG or AFTRA, depending on whether it's motion picture or television. So most of the people on that stage are represented by a union. The biggest union in show business is the IATSE. And these companies are, are no strangers to dealing with unions. Right. Essentially... The visual effects department is the only department, uh, by all by all accounts, that is not represented, and yet it often on a film is the largest group. It not only is it the largest group, but but the product of their labor, your work, is what's going to drive that film to success. When we think about the work that we do, and I think we all know people that move between a feature film and then maybe they'll go do some work in a gaming environment, or maybe they'll go do some commercial work in a small company, or maybe they'll go work. Um, on a TV stu- uh, pilot, something like that. Um, is it possible for the IA to, to represent even small companies like that or in, and offer those kind of portable benefits and things to those smaller companies and, and those other industries? Yes, not only is it possible, but in many of those industries, we, we are there. We're certainly there in the commercial world. Um, we, we do commercials all over town. Um, we, and we're constantly organizing those. We've got a representative over at our office that that's a large part of his work is going out, checking on the commercial shot in town and organizing them and putting them under on the shoot side. Yes, on the shoot shoot side. So that's, you know, that's work that we cover. Uh, We're not in the gaming industry so much, but we would love to be. I mean, you guys, there's an awful lot of you guys that are doing that, that work and it would be very good to get that work covered as well. So let's talk a little bit about the cynical because when the, this topic comes up with artists, what I hear most is, "I'm yeah, making a good money. I'm, you know, I'm working. I get, you know, I do have a lot of time off. Um, 
you know, from time to time, and I kind of enjoy that. Um, and then you hear all the all the catchphrases, all the things that just anger me, like, oh, all the work's going to leave town if we organize, and things like that. I mean, because, you know, I've done a lot of research on this, and um, especially uh, we, we did a podcast with Tom Cito, his book about the animation unions, um, talking about the history of animation. You read that book, and you just go, this was all, this is history. This is all the same things that people thought back then and it wasn't true then and it's not true now so can we just talk about some of those misconceptions about unions and about this whole process well one of the one of the one of the big misconceptions that i that i hear about about unions and organizing is everybody seems to know right off the bat what's going to be in the contract and how much the contract is going to cost and that's going to put the company out of business and there are going to be all these expenses, and the union's going to come between the employee and the employer, so you're no longer going to be able to talk to each other. And I don't know how everybody knows this stuff, because we haven't sat down with a single visual effects employer yet and negotiated the agreement. You know, when we organize uh, a company or organize the employees in the company, what we, what we get at that point and what the employees get is they get the right to sit down and bargain a contract. You don't get the contract. Nobody, nobody knows up until we actually sit down at the table and start talking with the, with the company how that contract is going to look. We, we know what we want it to look like. The company knows what they want it to look like. But we don't know until we actually get there and do it. So to say that it's going to cost all this money or that it's going to put the company out of business um, I think that's a little bit of a leap. You don't really know. The other thing that's really important to understand is that it does the union no good to sit down and bargain a contract with a company that the company can't stay in business with. We're not here to put companies out of business. Without the companies, the workers have no place to go. There's no job. So it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense for us to sit down and bargain a contract that's just going to put the company out of business. We need to get something that's going to go ahead and work for both sides. And that's, to me, that's, that's the important part of that thing. And it's also one of the ways that I try and approach collective bargaining is as a problem-solving device. You know, what are the problems and how can we solve them to our mutual benefit? I know that's a little bit uh, Pollyannish on my part. But it's the way I like to at least begin the process. So let's talk about the process itself. I mean, we've seen recently the uh, creation of the website trying to organize the Sony um, ImageWorks mm-hmm. workers. And uh, that came from the artists, I understand. And yes. You had a few meetings over in Culver City with people and yes. took to reasonably good turnouts and things. And can you kind of talk about how this really happens? Because like I said earlier in the podcast, I think people thought there was a magic wand and, you know, you guys say we're going to organize visual effects and bam, it happens. But well, it actually has to start at the other end, doesn't it? it? It does have to start at the other end. The days of the international president or the union boss walking into the company, throwing his feet up on the boss's desk, lighting a, lighting a cigar, saying, okay, now you got to deal with me. Those days, if they ever were there, are not there now. And the, and, and the, the whole, what am I trying to say? The whole decision on whether a company is going to go union, that decision does not belong to the IATSC. It doesn't belong to the employer. It belongs to the employer's employees. Those are the people that are going to decide whether or not that company is going to be represented by a union or not. Not up to me. It's not up to the employer. And that's where it has to start. It has to start with the employees of that company wanting to have the union there. And 
I, I can't emphasize that enough. It, without the employees really wanting it, it's not going to happen. Those are the people that it has to happen. If it was up to me or if it was up to President Loeb, we would have come in and waved that wand. But we can't do it without the people, the people that work for that company inviting us in. So to that end, one of the things that obviously has been criticized um, about the effort, I guess, uh, has been just the lack of information. I think people kind of felt like it was announced, but there wasn't a lot of information. Like, this is the first time we've gotten to sit down and talk, even though you and I have talked quite a number of times as I've begged for this over the years and just really come to know each other from, from conversations often about these issues. I understand that we may have a website up and running by now? We, we, we've been working on a website. We've been working on revamping the IA's website, and we're also going to have a website dedicated to, to the visual effects organizing drive, and its uh, address is going to be vfx.iatse-intl.org. And uh, we can repeat that later on. Okay, yeah, we'll put it in the story. Someplace. It'll be in the story, too. If you're listening to this in your car or on a train and you want to check that out, I'll, I'll put a link to that in, this, in the story about this on, on FX Guide. So talk to me. So what should artists do? What, what's the best thing well, for them to do? Let me, let me talk a little bit about what's going on over at Sony, but just okay. in, in really broad strokes, and I'm just going to use that as an example because, because that's out there at the moment. Um, the way that, that the people at, at Sony are going about trying to get the IATSE recognized as the bargaining agent for them is they're filling out what we call white cards or representation cards. And what those cards are, it, you, sign, you, you put your name on the card, and it says that you authorize the IATSE as your bargaining agent. Those those cards are the individual's expression of, of their desire to have a to have a labor union. What there are a few ways that that can go. We collect the cards. One thing that's very important to know about those cards is nobody except the union or the National Labor Relations Board is ever going to see those cards. It's it's they're never going to get presented to the employer. The employer has no right to see them. It's just your expression that you want a union and a neutral third party. If we get to that point, we'll look at those cards and determine whether or not we have a showing of interest for a union. So it's very important to know that those cards are not seen by anybody other than the union or a neutral third party, most often the National Labor Relations Board. If we get a showing of interest on those cards, and the showing of interest technically is 30% of the employees, uh, then we can we can petition the National Labor Relations Board to have an election. We will never go in there with only 30% interest because we want to go in knowing that we're going to win the election or, or having the best chance to win the election. So we generally don't go in with that small number. But once we have, have a number of cards sufficient to have, to have a good showing of interest, we'll petition, there's, we can petition the board or we can go to the employer and say, most of your employees want to have a union. Will you recognize us? And they can agree to what, what, what's called a card check, to where the neutral third party will look at the cards and determine whether or not 50% plus one of the employees want the union. And if they do, then there will be a union there. We win, we win the right, and the employees win the right to collectively bargain. And that's when the fun starts trying to negotiate a first contract. Well, that's an interesting concept, though, because one of the things I've always wondered about the card situation was 
since a lot of people are freelance and a lot of people do come and go to companies, is people sometimes are hesitant to sign a card because they're like, well, I'm only here for six months or whatever like that. But it actually, you have no idea when that could happen. So it's better for people to fill out a card because somebody else is making that determination of where the cutoffs are and all that kind of stuff. That's right. I mean, the entire entertainment industry at this point is a freelance industry, and we all know that. And I can't speak to the rules governing motion picture production right at the moment, but I know in legitimate theater there's uh, there's some case law that governs how far back you can you can reach for employees because it's the same the same holds true for theaters as it does it in the motion picture industry it's a it's a transient population I mean people come and people go depending on the size of production and what's going on and and in in the uh, in the theatrical world you can reach back. I believe it's 30 days from the day the election is ordered. So, and that's something you come to an agreement through a negotiation with the National Labor Relations Board and the employer as to how how far back you can reach. So that you know that that time limit can go back. So you don't really know whether you're going to be eligible or not until we actually get to that point. Right. So but if you're working for the company and you're interested in having that company unionized, or if you have worked for the company, go ahead and sign that card. And then the union will have to do the research on whether or not that's going to be valid. Right. But again, without involving your name with the employer, you're not in any jeopardy by doing that. No, those, those cards are strictly confidential. That, th- those, the, the, there is no reason for the employer ever to see those cards. And there's no reason for the union to ever tell anybody except the National Labor Relations Board or if you stipulate to a different third party. Um, like the, I held an election once with the California State Mediation and Conciliation Service. They they ran the election for us, um, but they're you know a bona fide neutral third party. Nobody the employer does not get to see those cards. So they check those cards against a, na- a roster of qualified names, I guess. Yeah, it's saying what we it's what what's come to be known as an Excelsior list. I guess what I really want to do is just kind of wrap this up with. To me, this is such a. A campaign, and I guess what I really like you to do is just speak directly. You know, just just give me a little directly to an artist who's out there trying to decide. They've heard a lot about this. There's all these misconceptions floating around. Um, I think we've done a really good job of bringing a lot of these issues um, to clarity. But just if you could just talk to somebody one on one, what would you say to them? Well, I I think the first thing I would say is that you know the visual effects industry. While it's unique in in many many aspects of what you guys do, and you guys create absolute magic on the on the screen, it's not it's the work is not unique. The well, the working conditions are not unique, and the and, and the work situation is not unique. the The same challenges that you guys face are are faced by all the other motion picture workers. They're faced by people in in legitimate theater. Uh, they're you're not alone in in your, in your struggles to be recognized as artists and workers and to be paid a fair wage for the work that you do. I just did a drive with the, uh, the Pasadena Playhouse, and there was about 45 people in that unit. And those people are artistic professionals just like everybody else that works in, in legitimate theater and in the motion picture business. Those people build scenery. They... they do costumes, they do props, they're scenic artists, and they have a real 
influence on what those shows look like on stage, and yet their employer is, was taking the same kind of advantage of them as I hear from the visual effects workers. They're either being classified as independent contractors or they don't know what their pay is going to be from one day to the next. They're tired of being, set, uh, being told, well, you know what, we can't afford you today, so stay home when, when they could have booked other work. It's all those kinds of things. It's all the same issues. You know, for everybody in the entertainment industry. So you guys are not alone. We understand it and we get it. You know, I I did my share of work in small theaters. You know, Vanessa has worked, you know, in the in the reality business. Steve, I I know Steve from when he used to work in the in the Steve Kaplan. Small, Steve Kaplan when he used to yeah. work in the in the in the small theaters, and as a visual effect art, effects artist, we all understand these issues on a firsthand basis, and we really think that we can help. And you. Don't get discouraged about these efforts. They take a long time. They take years. As, as you mentioned, you know, we, we started our effort years ago, and, and, and now it's getting to this point where it's starting to take off. Uh, the guys at the Playhouse, I think we've been working with them for eight or nine months. And, and it starts with them. It starts with the people inside, inside the workplace that have to want it. We can't come and impose our will on you, nor do we want to. We, 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 we can help you guys organize. We can, we can put some kind of structure around it, but we can't do it for you. We can't just stand outside the door and say, this place is now a union facility. It's got to come from within. And I get that it's scary, and I get that it feels like you're putting a lot on the line, and quite frankly, you are. But I think the benefits can be terrific, and I think the benefits can give you a life that you can carry carry on to your old age yeah and and that's a very good point i i and when i listen to you i think i mean i think that's such an important point that people need to understand i think visual effects artists tend to think of themselves as this unique group and while what we do certainly is unique we are the same as everybody else on a film crew In in the same problems the same issues the same struggles some some have faced these these specific problems earlier than us but we're at a maturity point now where people do need to start thinking about the business of visual effects as in addition to the art of visual effects. And I think that this is important. And also on a global scale. I mean, I know the union has the United States and Canada is pretty much restricted to that. But, you know, when I talk to friends outside the United States, a lot of people are facing very similar issues. So I think a broad global dialogue about these issues helps everybody. I, I agree with you. So one more, we mentioned Steve Kaplan. Can we just talk a little bit about that structure? Because I know a lot of people are very familiar with Steve. Steve's been very vocal. Um, I'm very, very passionate on a lot of the forums and very helpful in a lot of the artists to develop more of a relationship with him. So that's the Animation Guild. That's 839. Visual effects is, is seeking to be organized under, directly under the IA, correct? Yeah, we're, we're, we're seeking to get the visual effects industry organized any way that we can get it organized. 839 has, has the, same, the same vision as, as, as we do, which is to get the visual effects workers organized. Our ultimate vision is to have the visual effects workers govern themselves, and if that means creating a separate local or guild, whatever we want to call it, um, I think, we should, I think we should agree to call it a guild for now. Okay, I think we'll, we'll call I think we should it, we'll just call title it that because I, I think maybe the league. I was thinking the league, like Justice League, or yeah. something, something visual effects artists relate to. I don't know. It just seems yeah. like we do ourselves a big favor by calling it that. Well, then then let's start calling it a guild. But that 
I think at the end of the day, that's what the visual effects community needs. I mean, it needs to have a governing body that is made up of visual effects workers that's, that is ultimately governed by visual effects workers, that the people, the visual effects workers in the democratic process choose their leaders and they choose their constitution and bylaws and they, they choose how to negotiate their contracts. I mean, I think that's so important for, for, for the workers to, to feel. And we talked earlier in this about the ratification process of the basic agreement. And, it's also important to mention that you know at those negotiations, all the individual locals were represented, not just represented by one person, but they each had teams that went in there, and they had individual negotiations for each one of those locals as a precursor for, for the main negotiation. And I think that's so important to realize that the IATSE strives to be a democratic organization, and we really want the workers to be represented. I don't want to come in and impose what my ideas are on anybody. I want it to come from the people that are actually working out there in those visual effects houses, and that they, you guys know better than, than anybody else knows what it takes to make your lives better. Right, and that, that kind of brings me back to something I saw VFX Soldier has been discussing lately, but he was talking lately about the whole, about outsourcing and about actually going to seek a lawyer to look into some of the trade violations about mm-hmm. some of these um, incentive plans that are being done around the world. And he mentioned the thought that, you know, a union could or should maybe help with that as much as fighting piracy, that fighting those kind of subsidies might be. So is that something, I mean, it seems to me like since this, a union is essentially made up of the members, that would be something that could be discussed. I mean, once there's a union in place, things like that, lobbying. I mean, obviously, unions get involved with stuff like that, too, I assume. But we, we've been involved with things like that in the past, not particularly successfully. Um, you know, our main, our main thrust is to represent the workers in this country. And certainly, you know, some of our locals have been involved with, with things like that. The international has not been involved with it per se. That's again. That's one of the the things about having autonomous locals that can choose to get involved with things like that if that's what they choose. The international's not been so involved with uh, with those kinds of things. There was an effort a while ago that kind of fell on its face that some of the locals were involved with. But it, it being a trade organization, certainly we we can advocate for some of that stuff. But we've found over the years it's really better for us to advocate for the workers in the workplace, and we we're trying to have. One of, the, one of the big changes that's come about in our organization over the past uh, 15 years or so is, is a political activity. You know, we've become, the eye has become much more political than it, than it has been in the past and, and, and is seeking to become more so. Um, and that's, those influences, I think, are best used at home to, to do what we can do to, to keep our industry strong and, quite frankly, to keep trade unionism strong. Trade unionism is, uh, trade unionism is under assault right now, and, and assault is not too strong a word. I mean, there, there are forces out there that are really trying to limit our voice in the workplace and whim, limit our voice on a political scene, and we really can't let that happen because that's detrimental to all, every, every working person in the country. And, and, and ironically, I looked up recently this the number, and I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it was like eight percent of the population is represented by a union. Uh, it's, it's a little bit less than that if you talk about the private sector, and it's just amazing how few of us there are left. And we still have a great deal of influence on the world. And if you listen to the presidential campaigns, uh, especially on 
the, the non-Democrat, shall we say. Uh, if you listen to them, those 6.5% of us that are unionized in the private sector, if they could just get rid of us, the world would be wonderful. And I oh, don't yeah. know how 6% of us have that. Oh, I know. That's the, the, the context that I came to, and I don't want to get into politics too much, but the, the context I came to this with was you know, the knee-jerk reaction to a lot of um, right-wing friends of mine on Facebook um, – to, to, to discussing corporate influence has been, well, then we have to eliminate union influence. And I'm like, are you really that worried about 8% or less than 8% or 6% of the population? It's such a weird thing to me that it's that small of an influence. It, 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 it's, it's very interesting that 6% or 6.5% can have that influence. And we can go down that road if you want. No, no, no. I'm not sure it's the, the we can't proper s- form. For no, the- we can't solve all the problems <laughs> in the world. I'm just trying to get... I just really I, I really wanted to thank you for this. I mean, I I just think that this is... in that This is exactly what we've been looking for, is information. And I think the website... Can Let's give that na- name again. The uh, vfxiatse dash. I-N-T-L dot O-R-G. And I'll put that in the FX Guide article. And I'm sure you'll see that everywhere as soon as it's released, um, which should be by the time this podcast is out. Uh, I think that information is the is the best friend. I think you've done a really good job of giving us um, a lot of direct information that people can use and, and hopefully have learned from this and, and can get in touch with people. I guess they can get in touch with you or Steve. or um, They can get in touch with me, Steve, or Vanessa. Um, you know, our, our doors are always open. We, we, we like to buy lunch. Um, we well, don't. it's clear that with the SPI, you know, the Sony Image Works, that you guys have been doing steady meetings about that once they started the initiative. So I'm sure people, if, if things start rolling, it seems like you guys jump in and get involved once the artists. We, 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 are, we, we really are there to help. Um, we've dedicated more resources to it. Um, Vanessa's like name is, is a new name that's been added to, to this project. I think we're working more as a team now at the IA, you know, Steve. Kaplan, myself, and Vanessa, and we've got we've got other people at our office that, as this effort expands, we can we can start jumping in. But I think you're seeing more resources um, being dedicated to this this process. Well, that's great. Well, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, and I hope to be back again. Well, that's it for this week. Obviously, a very complex issue, but hopefully, we've clarified some of the areas for you. I want to thank Jeff in particular for quite literally months and months of work uh, to bring you that interview. Well, uh, we have some really great stuff coming up in future FX podcasts. We have the summer blockbuster films, the tentpole films. We have some great coverage from those as well as some great FX Guide TV and good stuff happening over at the RC podcast, our digital cinematography, as well as the VFX show, our review show. And that's uh, got some really great stuff happening, both new films, but also we like to do some retro stuff over there. Thanks also for your support in listening to us. We really appreciate it. Until next time, I'm Mike Seymour on behalf of Jeff and John. Thanks so much. See ya. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.